0: Hello, welcome to Seeing Them Given, the show that shines a light on the laws of the game and the referees who enforce them. This week, just how far back in the build-up can VAR go for a check? What can goalkeepers get away with in the Premier League this season? And just how bad does a pitch have to get before a referee can call it off? Does the scoreline impact that decision? I'm Mike McCarthy, a football journalist who witnessed the first ever goalless draw between Burnley and Norwich City this weekend. With me, a man who's been part of some actual football history, former FIFA referee and ex-head of the PGMOL, Keith Hackett. Hi, Mike. Uh, now, I, I don't think I've asked you this before, Keith. Do you actually know exactly how many professional games you refereed? No.
1: No. Uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because I used to smile because local referee in Sheffield Uriah Rennie used to have a a little book and he used to make post-match notes and then get his assistants to make their comments and therefore he he himself built up a great history sadly I didn't I I knew that at um, amateur level it was over a thousand games and it you Know, um, 23 years at the professional level, I guess. Uh, it's got to
0: be getting on for that number, is not it? 40, yeah, 50
1: games, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, well, um, if someone does have the answer and can enlighten us, uh, we'd be delighted to hear it. You can get in touch with the show. Hello at seenthemgiven.co.uk is the email address. Let's start actually with some correspondence from Andy. Andy says, Hi, Mike and Keith, really enjoying the podcast. Glad you are, Andy. Says, I've got a couple of questions. Firstly, did the PGMOL ever give thought to having teams of officials? So the referee and assistants work together throughout the year and, and build a relationship. If not in the professional game, would you think of it working at grassroots level? Could that work? And also says this, the second question is around kick clashes. At the other Friday, West Brom entertained QPR, but both were in blue and white. One in blue and white stripes, the other in blue and white hoops. Would it not have been easier if QPR were in their change strip? Keep up the good work, says Andy. Andy, thanks for your question. From a commentator's perspective, Andy, yes, it certainly would have been easier if West Brom and QPR were in uh, different uh, arranged kits than they actually appeared in at the Hawthorns. Keith, uh, who who decides on kit clashes?
1: The referee ultimately, because it's within the laws of the game, that in effect there should be five colours on the pitch that are easily distinguished, i.e. the two teams, the two goalkeepers and the referee. In the Premier League, it's slightly different because uh, invariably, for commercial reasons, the Premier League get involved and it almost advise the referee the colours of the kits and the kit colour that the referee should be wearing. And I always smile because, you know, within the framework of refereeing, I think at the top level, we can have four or five colours, all approved by the FA and the PGMOL. But at grassroots level, I think we're allowed two. And I think to some degree, that's, that does invoke at times problems when goalkeepers can go out and buy these sort of special kits with different colours and mosaics and all, all the sort of things we see. I think in that West Brom game, I think it was a major error. You know, one of the things that, from a playing point of view, is you want instant recognition of a team colleague. So if it's difficult for you as a commentator or as a, a media man, then it's difficult for the fans, and it's equally difficult for the referee, and in particular the assistant referee. So I think there was a big error here. Now, whether someone had forgotten to bring a second kit,
0: it has been known, it has happened, doesn't it? Yeah, is it absolutely. Chelsea turning up at Coventry or something with the yeah w- without yeah.
1: their kit? Well, I think there was one famous one where David Ellery got involved. He was the match referee and there was a clash of colours. And so one of the teams wore their shirts inside out. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the sponsors would not have been happy on that day. No. But, you know, I get a lot of correspondence from referees at grassroots level and people just saying, look, uh, I think it, this week, I think Anthony Taylor wore black. And one of the goalkeepers was in black, and often we see the other colours that referees wear, yellow in particular, clashing with goalkeepers that are wearing yellow. So, I think it, I think it just needs to be tidied up and uh, and sorted by the
0: authorities. We'll see how uh, that progresses through the year uh, on the issue of, of having teams of officials, Keith. So, is this something that gets done? Do, uh, a referee in particular assistance work together through the season, or is that not how it works? Well, I introduced this after I'd had
1: discussions with Professor Craig Mahoney, who was our sports psychologist at the time. We had this uh, relationship uh, scenario between referee to almost get to a point where there, were, there was, you know, a fifth, sixth sense operating and things did, were natural. Uh, and referees, did, you know, gathered the weaknesses of their colleagues. And dealt with them you know there's some referees by the way who want to operate wholly without the involvement of the assistant referee there's others who rely so heavily on referees i mean i used to in my pre-match instruction say to them look uh, the area between penalty area and touchline goal line and the edge of the penalty area that rectangle is yours to referee you're going to be pretty close to that so have the courage to give me a decision i also used to say look, if you've got anything to say about my performance in the first half, say it at the half time. The reason for that was that that then allowed me to, if I thought an assistant referee or a linesman wasn't performing well, to interject and, and say. But yes, I introduced teams. I think probably the one that's instantly recognisable is Howard Webb with Mike Malarkey and Darren Cann, And they went on to referee the 2010 World Cup. And there's no doubt that when you have that relationship, the old teamwork becomes better. They know each other. They know each other's family's background. They they, they they develop, if you like, a tighter knit. And the one thing that I think that was beneficial was that, you know, if one of them made an error, it was the team that made an error. So there was this additional pressure. You're not only refereeing for your you know, help the referee in this case, if you're running the line, you're actually your colleague the other side. And I think the dynamic uh, improved the performance of match officials. I think Mike Riley
0: continues to do that. Certainly UEFA do. Do, do we see patterns of referees and VARs working together? Is that something that's going to happen over time? Well, think? I think that
1: should be the case. I mean, I, I've, you know, this is why I wanted an independent panel, which is, has to be larger than the current group of. VARs. It's a small number because it's active referees pulled from the, the Premier League group, which is now 20, so it's easier, but before it was 16. And for me, I think that having the same VAR, a lot of people will say it, it promotes complacency, but it, it, it promotes that idea of actually picking the phone up and analysing what has been said, what has been done, and the referee determining what do wants, want? You might want to say to the VAR, look, act as a second referee, come into my ear, talk to me. In the same way that some referees want assistant referees to do that. I mean, that's the only aspect. I mean, when we first introduced the communication kit, we had a push button for the assistant to speak to the referee, but then it it, it was a delay factor. Some, some assistants couldn't find the button and all those sort of things. So, when we went open mic, we had to determine a criteria of operation, a silent mode, but then on the important bits to come in. And sometimes that were words of encouragement. Some referees operated 10 minute block referee without boring you too much. And that was, let's say, the first 10 minutes, the, the referee is going to be tightly controlling the game to assert his authority. He will inform the assistant referees to be sharp. If you see anything, flag. And then after 10 minutes, the game is under his control and he might then indicate with a rolling hand, look, I'm going to free up. Let's relax a little, let the game open up a little bit. We're going to, Our tolerance levels are going to go up. And then when it started getting a bit heated, then they'd say, right, okay, we're going to pull it back again. And And so that was a method of, some referees operating. Graham Barber and Graham Paul used to operate, the 10-minute block referee.
0: Interesting. Look, Andy, great questions. If you want to send something into the show, hello at seenmcgiven.co.uk is the way to do so. Uh, let's look at some of the weekend's action then, starting with Liverpool-Man City, uh, the late game on Sunday, Keith. Yeah. Uh, lots of good moments for Paul Tierney, who, who refereed the game, uh, I thought, really well. However, the yes. major talking point is... A second yellow card not given to James Milner. What did you make of the challenge on Bernardo Silva, and should Milner have walked? Oh, there's
1: no 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 question in my mind. This was a cautionable offence, and he should have gone second yellow without question. Um. So you then you then ask the question: uh, Was Paul in the right position? I mean, consistently through, throughout this game, he officiated extremely well. I mean, there's no question. This was a this was a top class performance. But it just highlights the tightrope on which a Premier League referee operates. And that is, he doesn't want a major error. And this is a major error. And of course, what I think is a shortfall in VAR is that VAR cannot come in and help him. Mm. He can't come in and say, hey, stop the game and review that incident. He's not allowed to do that on yellow cards. Now, in my view, I think this is an additional area that the IFAB, the governing body, should look at, particularly with red cards. You know, Let's have a review. Let's make certain if if that second yellow is an incorrect one, let us be able to review it. But we've talked before, haven't we, on this show about not being able to appeal yellow cards. So this is where it sits at the moment. No appeal operating at Premier League and Football League in relation to yellow cards. So I think that Paul will be disappointed. I hope that he will learn from it. You know, one minute or second of loss of concentration or being caught out of position, you know, in defence of him, although I'm critical, um, was he in the right position? Did he have, was he fully aware that that was a cautional offence? For me, looking at the screen, it was and he should have gone. And then he's then got the, the problem and Again, I'd just like to give a shout to Mike Dean because obviously Pep Guardiola lost it.
0: Mike Dean's face was a picture, wasn't <laughs> he? <laughs> it was amazing.
1: And uh, he just took it. I mean, he was the massive sponge at the side in the, in the technical area saying, See. I ain't going to react. But there was a point at which words were said, it reached the, the boiling point and uh, Tierney clearly came across and issued uh, Pep with a yellow card. The frustrations were there to see. It, it it just shows, doesn't it? You can you can have two hundred decisions in a game. You get one ninety nine spot on, and that one that you get wrong is going to penalise you. And of course, it was exaggerated or magnified by the fact that shortly afterwards Liverpool scored when they should have been down to ten men.
0: Uh, will Paul Tierney have, have felt something or known something as soon as he saw a couple of minutes later? Milner getting hooked uh, by Jurgen Klopp and being replaced at right-back, that maybe Milner was being protected there because he's certainly any challenge after that may well have been the second yellow that perhaps he should already have got. I
1: think think often we see uh, players uh, go a little bit glazed-eyed and they've got a yellow and then they're hunting for a second and you go to yourself, manager, please take them off. And, you know, that interim is... Try and calm it down by stopping and talking to the captain, as we've said before. You know, at the end of the day, these things happen. I, I do, we, do we want to get into the, the fact that players miss shots on goal where they ought to score or challenges miss? It's the game and we've got human beings and human beings do make errors. It's a pity because it detracts from a referee who is in form, who is refereeing well. He's a mature, uh, efficient referee, but he gets penalised with the, with the one error and it was a, it was a major one.
0: And that is the game, isn't it? Um, let's yeah. look at Chelsea-Southampton then because there's a couple of incidents here I wanted to uh, get into, Keith. Um, let's deal with the red card in a moment. I wanted to go first. The Chelsea disallowed goal from the first half. A foul discovered by aspilaqueta in the build-up to this one. Uh, in the build-up, if you haven't seen it, Aspilicueta wins the ball on the right-hand side, makes a cross, it then goes out on the other side of the penalty area, comes back in, and from that cross, Chelsea score their goal. So I guess the question is, how far back is the VAR allowed to look for an offence in which to rule out a goal?
1: I think this one was on the borderline of acceptance. I think it was right for the VAR to come in and rule out ultimately at the end of the day there's no hard and fast rule it isn't like the previous pass it's liquid and and as such it's up to the match officials to get balance and this this is going back to the drawing board this is where that decision will and should be examined by the group of professional referees determine its credibility is this an acceptable level if it is that's the benchmark that they work to, you know, how far back, uh, you know, is it, if, it, if it's 20, 30 yards back, is that credible? But, you know, that could be the speed of a player because, you know, 20, 30 yards back, if there's no defenders around, and somebody takes someone down with a foul and he's denied an obvious goal scoring opportunity, he could, he could get a red card. Yeah. So it, it is about getting, if you like, an overall view of what is acceptable.
0: Would you like to see the ball go into, say, a neutral area for that attack to can be considered over, almost, and then you can sort of reset the, the phase of play for want of a better expression? Is, is that a good way of looking at it? Because I'm thinking back to, for example, in fact, last week in the North London derby, Granite Xhaka makes a tackle uh, on the edge almost of his own penalty area Arsenal go up the other end of the pitch and score. Spurs want it brought back all the way for that mm. particular offence. It wasn't given mm. at the time, but that's what Spurs no. were arguing for. So yeah. the, the, I can, you can see exactly, and you've made the point perfectly, just how far back teams will want it to go when it's an offence maybe they perceive against yes. their own side, whereas yes. you know they don't want it if, of course, it's yeah. happening for them.
1: You have to rely on the experience of the, of the referee and his judgment uh, but as a group, not, not just out on his own, he's going to say it's on the edge of the penalty area and somebody's going to say it's 20 yards back. Mm-hmm. I think this is where everyone has, every incident of this type has to be analysed. And then, if you like, it goes into that mix and out of it, you get a, a degree of consistency. You know, and when, you, when you're right to talk about neutral areas, what about neutral areas? But the higher you get up in terms of the elite, a neutral area is an opportunity to a top-level professional yeah. player, and you know when when you see uh, when you see goals scored like today or passes made. I mean, there was there was one pass in that game that was rightly highlighted when I think it was Allison, uh, the goalkeeper, pushed the ball out to the left wing directly to his own player, uh, just in front of him, and and created from defence and attack and. You know, it was wonderful. And you're suddenly going, well, that's a neutral area to some degree. And all of a sudden, he's put his team on attack. Uh, I think this was credible. I think it was right to bring it back. I think it did input the, the game. I think the match officials got it right. But again, when you go back and look at that other one that we talked about last week, was that credible? Because there weren't many passes in between. No. Yeah, so I think that that is one where... Ultimately, the IFAB, the governing body, might be looking at what guidelines can we produce to help the match officials to achieve consistency in their interpretation. And, you know, prior to a tournament like the UEFA tournament or the the World Cups, these are the type of scenarios that are discussed. And they get the group of referees together and they get uniformity.
0: Ward Prowse then, a red card eventually, after Mike Dean, the VAR, urged Martin Atkinson to go and have a look at the challenge again on Jorginho. So yellow becomes red, the right call here? Yeah, I
1: mean, I I, I was amazed that uh, Martin Atkinson, who's not, not in the best of form at the moment, in my opinion, I mean, he's been an absolute cornerstone of the PGMOL. Even when I was there, as a good referee. And, um, you know, the last couple of seasons, he's been has been one of the outstanding, consistent referees that you could rely on. But I just feel that this season is just not ticking in the way that he, he normally pro- produces. And there was some hesitancy about his performance around the field of play. He didn't look confident. He didn't look sharp. And, and so as a result, what, what needs to be done is you, you have him across the table and, and you discuss it. What can we do? Do we need to put some extra training in? You know, Has he got a degree of complacency because games have come relatively easy to him? Look, if it's a competitive world and you're doing the job as the PGM boss, I think I'd be putting him out for a couple of weeks to say, look, have a rest and uh, have a think about your performances. Come in a bit sharper.
0: Kevin Friend was not, uh, well, most well-liked referee uh, of the season, I think, at Turf Moor. Burnley Norwich had an awful lot of interesting decisions for him to make. Uh, A lot of Burnley players booked, uh, but I wanted to get into one booking in particular, which kind of links into the Ward-Prowse challenge. Uh, A foul by Chris Wood on Ozan Kabak in the first half. Again, it's one of these tackles where a player is on the stretch, the ball moving away. Yellow on this occasion. Do you see any similarities between the two challenges?
1: Yes, I do. I think that both were reckless what the judgment then has to be is excessive force uh, endangering the safety of the opponent. Now, I think in the Woods scenario, the benefit of doubt was given to him because I think you, he landed before the actual contact was made and therefore he had some opportunity to stop or, or move. But they were both tight decisions. You know, they, this whole question of uh, referees and players understanding the three scenarios of a foul challenge involving the feet. And one is careless, which is just a free kick. Then you get a reckless, which is a yellow card. And then reckless with excessive force that endangers the safety of an opponent. And that, again, is a finite judgment. For me, when a player launches himself off the ground, traveling some distance with one or both legs, he's out of control, he's reckless, and he's endangering the safety of an opponent. And the outcome doesn't matter. You know, the, the, this is the amazing thing that people um, in players and managers don't understand. You know, I think there is a You want an element of contact with the ball, but often it doesn't have to be. And therefore, in that sense, take the ball, not the man, take the ball cleanly, you, this, you still can be pulled with a red card. The mm-hmm. ball isn't a decoy. And so this whole question of understanding what is a, a reckless challenge... Personally, I always look for a degree of malice, but then uh, players are very clever. They can hide that malice. They can look uh, as though they're not in any problems, but they know, they know exactly what they're doing. So um, I think benefit in, in situations where you as a referee consider it to be reckless, endangering the safety of an opponent, there's no benefit to the player. He has to go.
0: Yeah, and and a lot of penalty appeals for Burnley in this game. Not all of them uh, showed on match today because not all of them were particularly uh, clear-cut. However, there were a couple uh, that I want to get into here. Sean Dyche, who again complained that Burnley's record of getting penalties is horrendous. I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but he seems to think it's pretty bad. Um, Hanley on Vidro, where he appears to lean into the back of him, is one. But the big one for me, which Sean Dyche didn't complain about post-match, is Tim Krull with a challenge on Vidra, where he just appears to punch him in the head. Oh, I,
1: I, I mean, that is nailed on. I, I mean, I I watched it. Uh, I believed that, that the referee didn't give it. Uh, I'm looking around, waiting for VAR. It didn't come. I just find it incredible that Premier League match officials, and both of them are, are the VAR... Uh, in this case, was uh, Craig Porter. So they're both referees who are at the top end of the list and of experience, as well as being in in that area of FIFA officials. And so, for me, that was that was a penalty kick all every day, all day. Look, just look at the goalkeeper. He's come out. His arms are straight. They're locked. The fists. He missed the ball. What's the difference? I'm talking about feet on the play. here we've got the goalkeeper's tools of an hand and an arm it, I, I just shudder. i think it was just awful officiating really bad officiating for var not to come in and recognize that that was a clear and obvious error i just i'm just, I'm just shuddered by it
0: i mean goalkeepers seem to get away with an awful lot and well yeah I and
1: i i I I think that's I think that's fair comment. I think ultimately at the end of the day, I mean, again, I get correspondents saying, look, goalkeepers have, you know, we've got this dangerous attitude of players going out towards the edge of the area and just fouling players in a pretty dramatic dramatic way, using the whole of the body against an opponent. So for me, I think that we've just got to be aware of it. I mean, friend, I don't I don't know what he thinks today if he sees that and suddenly says, Well, I did a penalty kick. Sean has got every right to complain. It was a penalty kick. And these things impact on
0: the uh, on the, the result. Another one that was a, a clear miss uh, from a Leeds United fan's perspective, and I suspect a lot of neutrals as well in the uh, Leeds-Watford game, uh, uh, almost a rugby tackle on Dan James in the penalty area, but this neither given by the referee Simon Hooper or referred by Lee Mason to the monitor to have another look. First of all, Simon Hooper is doing his first
1: match in the Premier League this season. He's had three Football League games, maybe in the Cup, prior to this. So why? Because he's been on the list now. I think this is his third or fourth season. So clearly his boss is probably not total trust in him. And one of the reasons is that perhaps I've said in the past that this guy's not quick enough off the mark from a, a fitness and movement point of view. And I think he was exposed on this one. I think he was some yards behind. How could you not see the wrestling actions of a defender? No skill, pure no brute force, <laughs> and a penalty kick not given. Right, fine. So a penalty's not given, referees missed it. So where is Lee Mason? The only professional full-time VAR operator. And he doesn't come in because that's a clear and obvious error. And I, I just think to myself, he's gone out and make a cup of tea or something. But I think at this level, the elite level of the game with professional match officials, it's an error that's unacceptable. So, okay, it's his first game this season. I've questioned this referee's ability in the past, and I'm trying desperately not to be conditioned to the fact that I probably have some doubts about this official capacity at at Premier League level. But, hey, he's uh, pushing me that way again on this first performance in the Premier League this season. And if I was the boss, I'd be thinking very seriously about whether I'm going to give him another game in the next two months.
0: Well, Watford as well had an equaliser disallowed, uh, Cabaselli appeared to be fouled by Cooper but the decision went the other way after Mele had, had fumbled the corner and put it into his own net um, goalkeeper spared some embarrassment but uh, the officials on this instance not spared in the same way it seems
1: I think if I was the Watford manager I'd be screaming all the offences were against the team that scored if you want to apply advantage or you want to give a penalty kick, don't allow play to go on as it did There was a scrambling effect. It finished in the back of the net. You point to the middle. It's a goal. And don't invent. And what I've seen, this is an invention. It's a guess. You don't guess at this level of the game. It's unacceptable. And I I, I was disappointed because, you know, I don't want to be biased against the referee. I, I want to support refereeing. It's a difficult task. But if you're going to
0: wear the Premier League
1: badge, then you've got to live up to it.
0: Let's dish out some praise then, Keith, because uh, we've we've done a fair bit of criticism of some of the officials yeah. this weekend. It's that weekend, I think. Well, I'll tell you what, let's uh, let's look at some of the uh, performances of the weekend then. Uh, Manchester United-Everton, Michael Oliver, uh, you're full of praise for him. I
1: think Oliver's uh, by far and away the best referee that we've got in this country. Um, he's consistent, he puts the physical effort in, he's managing players, as I've said before, with with without... You know, quietly getting on. You know, the, the best referees are the ones that are not seen, and Oliver's in that class. When he does have to come in, his accuracy levels are high. I think that when a player gives the referee that level of respect and he returns it, then I think this is the one area that he's really developed in the last uh, year and a half. And that is, I think he was a bit aloof. Although I know he, he's not that, but he gave that impression. And I think that was a little bit of lacking in his own confidence. But trips out to Europe and he's, he's been getting some big games in Europe, like Anthony Taylor has. And I think they're benefiting from the, the workshops that they attend with UEFA. Because clearly the management style is different. They are always going to re- appoint referees that are in form. The penalty of making an error in a European Cup game, is that you're unlikely to get another game that season. That's how tough it is. And so, yeah, I think he managed the game fairly. He did He did a, a really good job. And I think the same for Anthony Taylor. I think he delivered in his game at Crystal Palace Leicester uh, Sunday afternoon. Again, another performance. A lot of physical effort. Good man management good quality decision-making. They're the
0: benchmark that the other referees have to reach. There was a sequence of play in that Crystal Palace Leicester game, which I really enjoyed, actually, and it was just a sequence around midfield where there was about three or four 50-50 challenges, full-blooded, but both players going honestly for the ball, and each time... The game was allowed to continue. It was allowed to develop, and Crystal Palace ended up having a chance uh, yeah. you know, down down at one end, and they didn't score. So it probably won't be noted by anyone else. But I just thought that was a really good piece of refereeing that allowed yeah. a game of football to develop.
1: In both of them, I see a lot of confidence that I don't see in some of the other referees. In fairness, the is today, I think he he looked confident. You know, th- there's always this sadly this claim. It's it's Liverpool, so you're not going to send a Liverpool player off. Honestly, I've been there in the big games, and it's the other way. <laughs> in order to maintain your own reputation integrity, you know, sometimes those very tight calls go against the whole team. In order that you see and show and demonstrate that you're not biased or afraid of what's being said in a big game like that seeing his concentration is good. Oliver's and, and Taylor's exactly the same. High levels of concentration, awareness, working and reading the game, understanding the players, the temperature of, of the game and the players' temperature. Having the quiet word off the ball, I could see that taking place. I think that, you know, despite that incident involving Milner that will have upset a lot of people, I still think he came out with, with a good performance. And these are three... Top class referees. So when you come to the next set of fixtures, three out of the seven for me are nailed on. I've only got to find seven referees that can, that can get anywhere near that. I know that Mike Dean can get there because he was off the middle at the this weekend doing other jobs. So I, and that's good to get a physical rest, I think, for, for, for Mike Dean. So for me,
0: they're setting the benchmark. Now before we go Keith I wanted to tackle something from the EFL this weekend and and with the uh, weather changing as dramatically as it has in the last week or so with the rain starting to pour down we're going to get situations like this um between now and the uh, the start of spring Portsmouth Sunderland was an interesting one because there were claims uh, from the Sunderland manager that the game should have been called off Now we won't mention uh, the fact that Lee Johnson's side were 4-0 down at the time at Portsmouth when he wanted the game to be called. But it did look like there was a lot of water on the pitch. It was certainly commented yeah. upon. I just wanted to get into the, the the state of a pitch and how bad it has to be, particularly during a game, for a referee to go, this is too much, we have to stop.
1: I think, first of all, we have to understand that the, the, the first criteria is that if, if the pitch is dodgy, i.e. snow, whatever... Then what you do is either you get two or three players, junior players that surround the club, and you ask them to take a ball out onto the pitch. And what you're looking for is that bounce of the ball. Is it plodding and stopping, or is is there some movement when it's played forward? And so that, if you like, is the first line of approach. Inspect it. Then the clubs will have got a MET forecast, but what you do is you ask them to ring the MET, to get an exact forecast of the rain. How long is it going to last? Is it going to stop? So you're preparing. You're then liaising with a, with a Football League or the Premier League in this case, uh, whatever, Football League, and you're saying, look, this is the state of the pitch. You know full well that if it's really dodgy, and remember uh, that sometimes the referee's called in at nine o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning to make that inspection. He delays as long as possible, the outcome. But what it's doing is he's saying, where are the spectators coming from, distance and all that involved, in order to determine at what point have you got to make a decision? Because that has to be an influence. Can you actually stop them coming in order to save them money and time and various other aspects? However, once you've given that red light to play, And you want to be in a position where you're going to play and you're going to get through the 90 minutes. But sometimes that plays against you. Now, what are the influences? As an example, I can tell you that I once was appointed to Newcastle Sunderland. The pitch was completely waterlogged. I was happy to call it off. When I received a visit from the chief constable to advise me that there were 52,000 spectators in the streets of Newcastle, and if I call the game off, it would impact and give them major problems on a Sunday where their force was at a lower level than perhaps in the middle of the week or on a Saturday. So I liaised with the Football League, and the the game was going to go ahead. They said, fine, play it. Frankly, it was waterlogged, but we eventually got through it. So you see how sometimes it's not just the influence of the ground itself, it's other aspects. So, for example, in the local park, it suddenly gets really bad. You can just walk off. Come on, lads, we're coming off. But in a professional game, you can't do that. You've got to actually give advance notice. So you're liaising through your fourth official with the ground controller and the chief police in order for them to have stewards at the gates to open them, fans to egress, and they can actually organise traffic uh, policemen on traffic control, buses, trains, whatever the mode of transport is, car parks, have them ready. Uh, so all these things come into account. Does, now, does
0: television play a role as well, Keith? If it's a big game on you know, an FA Cup tie on the BBC or, or on Sky, it's a big uh, afternoon of football. Is 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 that in the equation at all? Well, I think in my day it was, but now you've got to understand that every game is covered by
1: television, Premier League and Football League. And so therefore, yes, it does, because I think that sometimes there's extra revenue coming in, and where there's extra revenue into the club, there's there's extra work being done by them to make certain sure that the game goes ahead. Mm. I mean, this is particularly around snow and ice, you know, where, you know, you're getting calls out to spectators to come and shovel it off and various other things. Always gives an uneven surface. But again, I play. I think in this particular occasion, when when it's 4-0... That's think, a very difficult one to stop, isn't it? I think, uh, I, I think that... And I, I don't know what time that uh, the manager wanted it calling off, but at 4-0, uh, I'm saying to myself, I've got this far with the game because that's not four goals in the first 10 minutes... I'm going to finish the game.
0: Yeah, have you ever had to call a game off actually during it? No. I've,
1: I've always had this mentality, Mike, that from my point of view, if I'm starting it, I'm going to finish it. Because, you know, there's a point also, in the in, uh, there used to be, and I'm sure it's still, still the same, that if up to a given time in the match, the game is abandoned, then the money has to be refunded to the fans. That might be 60 minutes, something like that. That was also part of the equation. I can you, just imagine you, uh... the
0: chief executive standing pitch side with a stopwatch going, oh, you've got to get this going for another two minutes, <laughs> Keith.
1: Never never enforce that. I can remember going to Main Road. Bernard Alford was the secretary. He was there even up to a couple of years ago. Sadly, he's passed away now. I walked across the pitch. It was like concrete. And I said, um, I said, Bernard, I'm not too sure. And he goes, it's nothing different. It's like this in the summer and we play. And I've gone, it's a bit worse than that. And then the chairman, a guy called Peter Swales, who was the chairman of Man City then, came in and said, Mr Hackett, we have a problem. I go, what's that? We need to pay the wa- players' wages. And we need a game. We need the money through the gate in order to pay the wages. Now, that's Man City. <laughs> but that's yeah. well before... The sheep took over. But again, these are the if you like the the influences that we want. We we all referees are no different to fans, no different to players. Players are probably slightly different because it's a job. But referees want to play the game. They they you know, they've looked forward to officiating at the weekend all week. Ideally they want to play the game, but they have to be take safety into
0: account. Keith as always a real real pleasure want to signpost something because next week uh, part of what we're going to do is is discuss the referee shortage that is going on Mm. at the moment around the country reports of anywhere between 10 and 40% of referees in, in local grassroots football just not there anymore so if you want to tell us your story if you've maybe decided to stop or you're carrying on tell us why uh, send us an email hello at seenthemgiven.co.uk let us know what it's like where your grassroots football is because we all need referees to get this game happening and if it's not working right now we need to fix it as always if you've got a question for keith at uh, the email's the same hello at seenthemgiven.co.uk uh, you can send a message on twitter as well at scene underscore them underscore given if you stayed with us and i say this every week Uh, for the whole show thank you so much for listening Uh, do give us a rating or a review wherever it is you get your podcast there'll be new ones every Monday for now though Keith thanks so much for your company pleasure Mike we'll see you next time